Lead from the Side is made in partnership with Performance Leadership, a co-venture of Western Bulldogs and Victoria University. Hi, I'm Spencer Casimir, and this is Lead from the Side. Previously, the NRL's Graham Ainsley and I sat down to have a chat about the state of the game. On the field, Graham has refereed around 250 NRL games, including state of origin and international matches. He's also had an extensive career in business, sport, and politics. Currently, Graham is the NRL executive manager of Elite Football. I think you'll find it especially interesting how he relates the experiences he had as a referee in influencing how he led and still leads in his professional career and personal life. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting year. I mean, you're coming from refereeing. This year, we only have one actual rule change. Again, I'm being down here in Melbourne. Everybody's always complaining about AFL rule changes, but everybody in Sydney also complains up north. So this is a very mild year as far as things are concerned, isn't it? Yeah, well, we've been through a period of fairly substantial change over the last few years. Uh, we've implemented a lot of new rules to try and make the game faster, more continuous, more entertaining. The one tweak that we call it that we made was uh, to give some more balance and some more perspective and to make the games a little bit more competitive. And so far that seems to be working, but yes, it was just the one change. My favorite rule change of recent vintage was that there's now full accountability for players to stay packed in the scrum. And this is despite the fact that so many people feel the scrum to be uh, the appendix a vestigial organ of the game. Yeah, uh, well, look, you know, there's a long history to scrums. Obviously, they've been part of our game since um, it literally started in 1908 in this country. Scrums were under the unlimited tackle rule where teams could literally hold the ball for as long as they were able to hold it. One of the few ways you could get the ball back was from an era when there was a scrum. But uh, scrums got very messy. They also got quite dangerous in some ways. um, And there have been some serious injuries as a result of that. So With the introduction of limited tackle football, uh, the ball changes hands every 45 seconds or so. So the need for a scrum to be a competitive part of our game is no longer required, but it remains an important part of the fabric of the game. You know, people say, well, you know, the scrums are a joke because they're not a contest. Well, they're not intended to be a contest anymore. They're intended to be a restart of play. So now uh, they are much quicker. Uh, We've changed some rules recently in relation to where you can pack scrums. And again, that's to try and promote uh, some variety of attack from a scrum. Uh, And uh, yeah, those things have worked, uh, but, you know, I accept not everyone agrees with it. So I'm going to use the opportunity to start segueing to what you've been doing and what you've been working on. I mean, the women's competition has six teams now. We're talking about having the Rabbitohs and Sea Eagles over in Los Angeles, maybe. That's been brought up again. Player safety. I mean, you know, we had a really, really strong message to players and to fans alike. You've been quite busy. Yeah, there's look, there's a lot happening. There's a lot on the agenda. We've got a commission that's very focused on innovation and broadening the appeal and the um, the reach of the game. Uh, you know, there's been a few forays into the US uh, over the years. Whether it'll happen again in the foreseeable future remains to be seen, but there's definitely a lot of possibilities for our game. It just seems to make so much sense. It's high-speed American football with no pads, you know, a very reductionist way of describing it, but yeah, there are a lot of similarities. You know, I'm a big fan of the NFL and been to a Super Bowl. They have a lot more stoppages, of course, and 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 that's evolved for various reasons over the years. But the intent of both games is the same, which is to get the ball into, in our case, the end goal. And, and that's why I think it does adapt quite easily to an American audience. 
I think of rugby league and it's growing international, how competitive, how strong the kangaroos are, but, you know, speaking commercially, how much stronger the blues and maroons are as brands. Um, I mean, this is, this is going to be directly out of left field and I'm prefacing that because it is, but is, is there value in having those two sides represent themselves as such, almost as if England, Wales, Scotland do as separate entities as well? Yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, even if that was on the agenda, which it's not, that um, the quality of the sides that we can pull together in a state of origin match would still be very dominant internationally. And, you know, I'm not in any way disrespecting what's what's happened in the UK. It was the birthplace of the game. But uh, obviously football, soccer is the dominant code in the UK. And rugby league uh, plays a, you know, second tier level to that on the national stage where in Australia rugby league is the predominant winter sport up and down the east coast of the country you know certainly as competitive on a national basis as um, and and particularly a southeast asian basis a basis or pacific uh, basis than the AFL uh, so we are able to attract the best athletes where in England that's probably a little more difficult given the professionalism of rugby union there is that question as to how as the NRL grows to 17 and potentially 18 teams, how we continue to make sure that the talent pool continues to grow to field top grade sides as well. Yeah. Well, that's a, an extremely high focus of the commission. Uh, It's responsible for the entirety of the game from uh, kids playing in the park uh, right through to second tier competitions, ultimately onto the NRL, then state of origin and kangaroos. So, you know, they've got to make sure that the money that the game generates is distributed across all levels of the game. It's the same as any business, really. If you um, if you don't have the production line producing quality output, then you know you'll suffer uh, with the end product. And uh, putting uh, 26 players at any given point on the field each week uh, doesn't happen by accident. Uh, you can't just grab people off the street and say, "Well, he's a professional rugby league player." They have to go through an apprenticeship. They have to learn their trade, and they have to develop to the point where they can play at that level. And uh, if if we if we don't have the, the you know the production line pro- producing those players, then we're in trouble. Yeah, it's one of the big reasons I'm so bullish on the U.S. because there is so much talent available, not just in the men's game. There is no top grade women's gridiron game and so many talented women from all these sports that could be such an asset to rugby league and mm-hmm. but we got to move on to you specifically so we'll get to the boring bit now nah <laughs> you kidding this is the deep cuts yeah. the deep tracks Fair that enough. we're getting to okay so you know let's talk about what refereeing experience did for you about politics how it brought you to the gold coast how is that part of a narrative of what you've done and what you do well, uh, I mean, I'll give you the very potted version of kind of uh, how my journey has progressed. Uh, I mean, I came from a rugby league family. Um, I had a father who was a, a chairman of a junior rugby league club. Uh, so uh, rugby league was part of my upbringing. And when I was about 12 years old, um, I didn't have a really have an interest in playing the game. So I somehow, uh, through a contact, I was asked whether I'd be interested in refereeing. So uh, I went and, uh, you know, got my qualification and joined a local association and uh, started refereeing in the park with, uh, as we just talked about, the kids, the six and seven-year-olds. And I seemed to have some aptitude for it. So it just progressed over the years and then ultimately went on to become a first-grade referee uh, 
uh, what we now call NRL equivalent. Uh, when I was um, when I was very young, um, I was um, 25 years old, I think, when when I got there, and I spent the next 15 years doing that. But in those days, it was part time. So you know, the game, the players were part time, the referees were part time. So I held down a regular career. Uh, I had a corporate career working for a number of uh, national, multinational companies in management. Uh, and then the opportunity came in the mid-90s to uh, work full-time in the game. So I gave up what I was doing on the field and uh, moved into the administration and and had um, uh, you know a, a successful career in the administration, which uh, brought me into contact with a lot of people uh, from all walks of life. If you're looking to level up your ability to lead and inspire others, then performance leadership is the course for you. Performance leadership is a unique and exciting professional development course delivered in partnership with Western Bulldogs and Victoria University. The two-day course focuses on practical learning with a range of facilitated activities. Learning is complemented by high-performance sport insights from a range of Western Bulldogs guest speakers and senior industry leaders. Join like-minded professionals at Performance Leadership in Melbourne this October. To find out more, visit education.westernbulldogs.com.au. I'd always had an interest in politics. I had never activated it. I'd never been a member of a party. Uh, But I was approached uh, in 2007 and asked whether I would be interested in in running for parliament. Um, Gave that a lot of thought decided to give it a try, was unsuccessful on my first attempt. And then I was asked again four years later whether I would uh, try for the second time uh, in 2011. Again, I wasn't sure that I that I wanted to have another crack, but ultimately was talked around. And uh, I was elected in 2011 into the New South Wales Parliament. Um, I was immediately appointed by the Premier as the Minister for Sport and Recreation. And um, I spent a number of years doing that. Um, absolutely loved my job as the sports minister, but didn't care so much for a lot of the aspects of political life. And so I was then approached by the Gold Coast Titans. I spent about five years there before I was approached to go back to NRL head office, and I've been there ever since. I've been very fortunate. You know, rugby league has been very kind to me over the years. You know, there's no doubt I wouldn't have been a member of parliament had it not been for rugby league. And then having the opportunity to come back, uh, the game has done a lot to, um, to put me in the position that I'm in now. So let's talk about the actual business, you know, differences. What did you find is the biggest difference between your leadership roles at Gold Coast in NRL HQ as a referee and in politics? Hmm. Well, in many ways, they're very different, but in a lot of ways, they're also very similar. Uh, being, a, being a referee at the professional level teaches you a lot of uh, skills that you take with you for the rest of your life, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with people, how to manage difficult situations, how to deal with stress, how to deal with the media. And that led me to politics where, you know, politics can be, as we all know, a bit of a cesspool, but Ultimately, although it wasn't for me, I found that I I didn't care too much for that aspect of politics. I would never discourage anyone from becoming involved uh, because I, I take the view that we need good people in politics. And if all the good people 
say it's too hard. Why would I want to get involved in that? Then we'll get whatever's left over and uh, we'll get the people that, you know, want to do it for the wrong reasons. Um, we're seeing, I think we're seeing too many career politicians these days, people who, you know, literally go from school into working in a, a politician's office and then they work their way through the system and they've got literally no life skills at all. Um, and I don't think that's what politics should be about. I think it should be about regular people who have done something with their lives, have got life experience, who know what it's like to work, to try and make a living, to run a small business, and then take those skills with them into parliament. Uh, so, you know, again, uh, very, very similar skills that are required to go into politics as, uh, you know, my training in rugby league and, uh, and in life generally. And then when I went to the Titans, uh, my first true leadership role in as being the the head of the organization and uh it was in pretty bad shape when i got there uh financially uh, there were all sorts of uh challenges that we had to deal with including you know rebuilding the business uh putting the right corporate governance in place and you know changing the perception of the business in the local community so i couldn't have done any of that without each component of my career contributing to my preparedness to do each of my roles. And that's a very tough audience as well in the Gold Coast. It's markedly different in terms of the demographics. So that must have been quite a different experience. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was a tough period, but it was also very enjoyable because, you know, I had good people around me uh, who wanted to see things improve. Uh, they were prepared to support the club financially. There were there were times where the easiest decision, to be honest, would have been just to pack the whole thing up and say, well, you know, it didn't work. And even though the club still hasn't enjoyed the success on the field that, uh, you know, I hope it, it would have, uh, I've got no doubt that those days will come and they're not that far off. They've got good administration now, they've got good facilities, but winning in rugby league is not easy. And every year, all 16 teams think they're going to make the finals. So uh, it takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of time. You know, when thinking of the Titans specifically and what you worked with them, what do you feel are some of the biggest innovations and entrepreneurship endeavors that you've pioneered in your career? Well, gosh, you know, um, there's been a few. Uh, I mean, if I go back to my original time at the NRL, I mean, we introduced video technology into the game. Up until that point, it hadn't been used. That was a massive change to the game. Some people say, even to this day, it's detrimental to the game. Um, I, don't, I don't think it is. I mean, I don't think the game could ever contemplate going back to not using technology to some degree to help. Uh, I mean, the game's so important to people. It's so important financially to clubs. You know, we owe it to people to try and get as much as we can right on the field. I agree. Yeah. So technology, it was, you know, one of the, the, the most important things I've been involved with. We also, uh, you know, had to rebuild the game after it went through its schism in the mid-90s with Super League. Uh, and it took a long time, many, many, many years to make up that lost ground. Uh, so that, you know, I, I, I consider that to be an achievement. The Gold Coast Titans, the fact that we were able to keep the club alive, the fact that we were able to rebuild it and put it on a, a, a sound footing for future success, um, you know, I'm very proud of that. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I tend not to focus too much on, you know, what I've done, what I haven't done. I'm more interested in what I'm doing now and trying to make every day uh, as successful as possible rather than focusing on the past. I appreciate you sharing this. I mean, 
for getting back to the concept of the bunker and just video review, I mean, I don't think people even appreciate just, I mean, I don't even want to go back if I'm running touch to just, you know, using signals. If I have comms, why would we say get rid of comms? Is that tampering with the game too? Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And look, that was an interesting story even in itself. Um, the game had meddled for some time in, you know, uh, on-field communication for referees, but none of it was very successful. It was, you know, it had all sorts of performance issues. And and uh, when I was given the opportunity to try and improve some things in the game, I said, well, we need to sort of start from scratch. We need to get someone involved who has got some technology uh, background and knowledge to help us solve this problem. So I, I managed to find uh, a guy who had uh, been very successful in television audio, and he basically designed a system for us, which is still in use today. It's been upgraded and it's evolved over the years, but it's the system that is used in not only rugby league, but many other sports. Yeah. And I still want my earbuds that, you know, the short range FM uh, to work here at home so I can just listen to the referee as I'm watching on the TV. But, you know, we're talking about the innovation and the entrepreneurship side. What about the the hurdles and the pivots? What, what do you think was one of the projects that you worked on that, you know, you really had to not just grind through, but, you know, maybe it didn't work. Maybe it did work. Gee, that is a good, that's a deep question. You know, I, I think that the biggest hurdles I've, I've confronted during my career um, have taken place in two different eras, I suppose. The first was the uh, the Super League period, which I've referred to, uh, which was, you know, a, a terrible time for the game. I, I mean, a lot of good came out of it, don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, there are a lot of innovations in the game that are used to this day that came out of that period. And player salaries jumped. I'm sure they were happy. Yeah, yeah. Player salaries went through the roof and it made the game more professional, which made it more attractive to broadcasters. Um, but putting the game back together again was a was a, a massive task. It involved some clubs being cut. It involved some clubs merging. You know, there's the infamous time where uh, the Rabbitohs were cut from the competition and took Supreme Court action to have that reversed. Uh, you know, just a horrible time for the game in many ways. And in some ways, it was the game finding its real place, you know, where it needed to be. And uh, But there was a lot of pain that went with that. You know, but what we have now is as a result of, of that period. And I think every, most people would agree that the game's in pretty good shape. We've come through the pandemic. I guess if I had to put another period in my career that's been the most difficult would be the whole pandemic time. I literally didn't know whether the game was even going to survive it. And, you know, you've got to give credit to people like Peter Volandis, who was just absolutely adamant that the game was going to get back up and running. You know, shipping teams in and out, getting government exemptions to move players around the country, relocating the whole competition to Queensland. All of these things were massive, massive challenges that I never expected the game to face or my career to face. Again, everybody loved the game best when they were a kid, except for you. You seem to love the game best now. Hmm. Yeah. You know, life evolves. Everything about life evolves. I know there are many people who look at the past with rose-colored glasses and, and that's fine. I mean, if that's what works for them, I'm absolutely fine with that. But it's just not the way I look at the world. You know, I, I'm absolutely determined that no matter when my time in the game finishes, that I'm not going to be one of those people that sits around saying, well, you know, it was better back in my day or we did things this way and that was a better way to do it. You know, I, I think that everything is right for the time and time changes and uh, the way things evolve changes. So I'm never going to be doing that. The one thing that I would be curious to know was it ever considered during the lockdowns to have games played at earlier hours since there was no attendance? 
to have broadcasts in the U.S. because there was no sport being played in the U.S. at the time. No, look, I can't say it was. I mean, our primary objective, of course, was to get our games back on the field, uh, to comply with our obligations under our existing agreements with broadcasters, which you know, dictated what time and what days we play games. But having said that, you're right. I mean, we did lead the way. I think we were possibly the first sport in the world to set a date to get up and running again and to actually meet that date. And uh, if that provided opportunities in other markets, that would have been great, but it was not our primary objective. Our primary objective was to meet our our contractual obligations uh, and we were able to keep the game alive. And to be honest, I dread to think what would have happened had we been forced to shut down for the remainder of that season uh, and then try and start up again. Uh, I shudder to think what, what we would have confronted. You know, it makes you really appreciative that the NRL had the gumption, but also the, you know, capacity and the financial wherewithal to make it happen, because those sort of plans, especially then, were not cheap. It also gives you empathy for the little guy who had to sit and wait. But I guess that's a good way to ask the final question. If you have any good business advice that you wish you knew sooner, what would it be? Again, a a question I probably can't really answer with any clarity because I think that my business life has been a culmination of every day that I've fronted up uh, in either sport or politics or business. It's a continual learning process. Uh, You know, I don't think there's ever been a point where I've thought, gee, I wish I knew that 10 years ago. It's more been an accumulation of decades of experience and experiences that form you not only a business leader, but also a person. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect, far from it, made lots of mistakes along the way, but you also learn from your mistakes. It's great to hear that because we can't know everything all the time or everything even at the right time. There's still um, an enormous amount that I don't know. Uh, there's still an enormous amount of things that I would like to know. But again, they're not necessarily things that you can go and do a training course for, that you can go and pull off a shelf and read a book. Uh, they're things that you have to experience. And every experience is different. The circumstances are different. And uh, how you react, how you respond to them is as a direct result of the experience that you've gathered through your career uh, and your life. I, I think a lot of business, a lot of life is common sense. And common sense is an accumulation of a lifetime of experiences. Well, let's just pray common sense doesn't become uncommon, right? Well, <laughs> there, is a, there is a fair degree of that too. Thanks for listening today. More information about the show and our guests can be found in the show notes. You can follow the show on Twitter or LinkedIn at Lead From The Side or myself on Twitter or LinkedIn at BallsOutPhD. If you want to contribute to the show, send us an email at leadfromtheside at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next time, and remember to lead from the side.